0: Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson.
1: And I'm David Common.
0: And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services.
2: Our TV
1: show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast.
0: CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This is a CBC podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. One of the pleasures of our online lives can be in the way we express different aspects of ourselves, playing with our self presentation. What that looks like has changed over time, of course. You've got mail. From goofy email addresses and wacky online handles in the 90s to showcasing one part of our personality on a social media platform. Hashtag Tuxedo Cats Forever. To getting creative with the kind of avatar you use. Avatars are you, but a digital visual representation of you online. And it doesn't have to look like you at all. My Instagram profile pic is my cat Lola. You can find them in video games, social media platforms, and even in the form of customizable avatars on your phone. But for some people, concealing what they really look like and adopting wild visual style has gone to a whole new level. VTubers, short for virtual YouTubers, are online streamers with legions of fans. But unlike, say, the gamers that people watch play on streaming sites like Twitch, VTubers present themselves entirely as elaborate, fantastical digital characters, entertaining and connecting with their audiences. It's exploding in popularity. So today, a look at the VTuber phenomenon and what it shows about how the rest of us play with identity online.
4: So VTubers are people that essentially forego their real appearance, and on websites like YouTube or on streaming websites like Twitch, they embody a fictional character in real time and perform this kind of unique form of entertainment and engagement for their audience. So instead of having a camera uh, and talking to you, there's going to be a picture of a 2D character or 3D character moving around, speaking to you, but with the voice of a real person. I'm Anna Bertna turner and I'm a recent master's graduate of Malmo University.
2: Anna's not a VTuber herself, but she recently completed a master's thesis about VTubers, their relationship to their identity, and how they present that identity online. As VTubers entertain their audience, it's almost like you're watching a real-time cartoon character, but you can also interact with that character. There's a real unseen person behind the avatar. If you find this all a little tough to visualize, here's how one VTuber, who live streams using an animated model, explained it to us.
1: If you close your eyes and you pretend you can see me, you will see a teal-haired cat girl with a flower growing out of her head, and a really colorful outfit with a lot of like fashionable, dangly bits, and bright colors, and cat motifs, and plant motifs, and piercings, and a little rabbit-shaped bun with a big ponytail and big sparkly anime eyes with flowers and stuff in them. It's all very over the top and very bright and colorful but that's not how it is for all VTubers. Some people go for a more like goth aesthetic or pastel aesthetic or a grotesque monster. Part of the appeal is that you can be anything. My name is Rose Doodle. A lot of people call me Rose. I am a cat sprout VTuber from Canada. I am in Ontario. Most of my streams consist of drawing, chatting, a lot of interactive stuff and gaming, especially like precision platformers and the like.
2: VTubers like Rose choose to connect with their online audience through a digital avatar rather than their actual physical body.
1: You can feel a little more safe being truly yourself. You can feel a little more free from judgment because people expect vtubers to be kind of zany and weird and maybe a little unusual sometimes so having that expectation makes it a little bit less scary to be with air quotes around it weird and i really enjoy that aspect it just helps me amplify who i am like because i have less to be afraid of and if i ever want to just you know disconnect I can, and no one will ever find me, and no one will ever be like, you're a weirdo, or whatever, you know, because I can just shut the computer off and be done with my day.
2: (laughs) That sense of safety Rose describes is something Anna Birna Turner heard a lot when she interviewed VTubers for her master's thesis, the way avatars help live streamers better express their identities. But where did the VTuber phenomenon begin?
4: When you think of YouTubers today, most people will think of like an anime girl. That's kind of the the typical appearance. Um and there's a reason for that because in Japan there uh was a company there was basically developing this specific type of software and they had a side project which uh eventually became like one of the most used softwares for VTubers. Uh and They also then decided to establish essentially a company for managing VTubers called Hololive. There are like millions of people that watch Hololive employed VTubers in Japan. And some years ago, they officially deployed an English speaking team. Originally, it was just all Japanese. And if you were kind of a Western fan, you would kind of have to put up with either watching a Japanese stream or hoping that fans would take the time to like fan translate sections of their streams or their other videos. Uh, but at this point, yeah, Hololive has uh, multiple English-speaking VTubers, uh, and it's kind of just become this <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah. So can you tell me a bit about the technology behind VTubing? Sure. So there's two core tenets, in my opinion, that, that make up VTubing. Uh, so first of all is that VTubers you know, stream or present themselves through uh, a fictional character. So there's usually either 2D models or 3D models. And what's really impressive is that these models are then rigged for animation. So, you know, if you think of like a, a Pixar movie or, or, or 2D animated TV show, right? There's models and characters that have to be hand animated by people. Sure. And Vtubers the models that they use in their streaming are essentially made the exact same way. So for 3D models, uh <laughs> 3D modeling isn't my expertise, but you essentially have to make a bunch of invisible bones that can then be animated to form poses. And for 2D models, there's basically lots of different layers. So if we use, you know, just a a girl, for example, there's lots of different layers to expose kind of the way the hair would move or like eye blinking or mouth movements. So all these different kind of iterations of a 2D model have to be made. And then those are then kind of stitched together. And then that movement is then controlled by a person. Uh, so the important other part of VTubing is that you need a kind of motion capture technology. Uh, and the complexity of that can, can vary. So the, on the high end, there's people that wear basically like full body motion capture suits. You know, they move their arm or they stand up and they bend over. Their, their model does the same and kind of the other extreme which uh is also much cheaper right so if you want a really complex like moving model with lots of different layers and lots of different kind of little uh bonuses that's going to cost you like these things are expensive right uh, so on the cheaper side if especially for if you just have like a little 2D image or something that you have there's really basic softwares that i think are just for free that basically will do like mouth movement, like kind of just like an open and real and open and closed. So essentially, you would just need like two frames, like an open mouth and a closed mouth. And that just responds to when you talk into the microphone. So when you're talking about these kinds of technologies, is it almost like the real
2: person behind this is almost like the puppeteer in some way?
4: It's it's interesting you you, you say it that way, because especially in in certain sections of like VTuber fandom and and, and VTuber work, it's it's very much like a performance. So they, there's like a character that they embody and so, you know, particularly within the, the Japanese ecosystem, often there's some sort of like story or sometimes they might be kind of related to fantasy. So, you know, if you're like a magical girl or, or, or something like that, then the person who is kind of streaming or, or making videos using this magical girl model would maybe talk in a specific way or, or move in a specific way. And yeah, so it's definitely that kind of, they are controlling it and controlling what you see. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also a you know, another community of VTubers that feel like it's kind of just another way for them to be themselves. But because there is that that aspect of separation, like you see the model and not them, there is always the kind of person behind the curtain.
2: Yeah. So can you compare a little bit how VTubers differ from, on the one hand, what we think of as traditional digital avatars, and on the other hand, you know, typical online streamers where you're seeing the actual person?
4: Sure. So for traditional Twitch streamers, people I think usually think of someone that's playing video games. Sure. Someone sitting in front of a camera and they have some sort of screen recording software. So people are either playing games on their computer or, or an Xbox or something. And they're, you know, they're playing their game or doing whatever activity and they're interacting with the people in the chat, their audience. But it's definitely like, you know, what, what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. And then whereas with VTubers, I as the VTuber get to choose what kind of model that you see. Uh, Maybe I'm going to use like a voice changer. Um, I might use um, like a Steam Deck or something that lets me kind of interact with aspects of my model. Sure, sure.
2: But then how does a VTuber's avatar differ from something like what we might see in, I don't know, Second Life or something like that, or, or a customized player character in a video game?
4: Yeah. The thing with that is that they're localized to a game and also they're they're basically predetermined, right? So when you buy a video game and you and you pick a character, you maybe get the chance to customize it or something, maybe pick their clothes or whatever. But, you know, the company that developed the game decided, this is what I want to put into it. And then presumably there's a story that they have written out. Like there's like a certain boundary that you have to stay within because this is a product that you purchased and you can experience whatever the people developed and, and that's it. When with VTubers, there's, there's similar boundaries, right? There's the essentially whatever you can afford, right? right? The model that you have looks however you like it. And if you want to change your model, you'll need to either draw it yourself or, or pay someone to draw it or or do some sort of new animation or, or whatever. So there's definitely boundaries in terms of like what can physically be done. But the sort of experience is never going to be the same as something in a video game, right? Because you're like, if, if I'm an audience member watching a VTuber, like that's that that's a person right that that was they're not they haven't been programmed to talk a certain way or something like that so although what i see there's a limit to that obviously it's in a way no different from watching a normal stream like they're going to talk they're going to play a game they might get surprised and things like that so they're similar but they're they're definitely not the same
2: yeah so it sounds like with the vtuber it's a much more individualized customized experience and expression of self yeah yeah.
4: So how do online
2: audiences interact with VTubers compared to sort of, you know, traditional online streamers who are there with their real world faces and bodies?
4: Uh, yeah. So I want to highlight that the research I've done has only been about VTubers. So I'm sure there's okay. there's other research that's uh, focused on like real life streamers so they might have you know some insights that I'm not sure about but a lot of the things that so in in my research I, I interviewed 10 different VTubers um, and a lot of what they were talking about that their audience seemed to really enjoy is that there's a there's a level of interaction that you can't engage in with real people you know if we take the for example for a 2d vtuber model twitch has this built-in system where you can spend real money to purchase like twitch money and you can donate it to streamers and they'll have basically a functionality that will let you pick uh, some sort of way of interacting with them Uh, like you know maybe that you can write a text message that then gets displayed over the stream so instead of just being in the chat box like everyone watching the stream will see it and there's lots of different variations on that but things that are kind of exclusive to the vtuber world would be uh, certain vtubers have things that if you pay a certain number of bits that's the that's the name of the currency it will literally like change their model's appearance so they could just be okay i'm going to look different because you know nora just paid me Twenty dollars. So now, for the rest of the stream, I'll you know be using a completely different model, and that's not something a a real a real person can do. You know, the level of interaction is different and seemingly more more creative, or at least Mm. more engaging than is standard for traditional streams, because it's not it's also something that I haven't really seen engaged with in a traditional like stream setting. I'm Nora Young, and today
2: on Spark, we're exploring digital avatars, online identity, and the growing VTubing trend. We'll hear more from my guest, Anna Birner-Turner, in a little bit. As we've heard, many VTubers use digital avatars in order to feel safe, experimenting with their identities
0: in ways they might not be able to IRL. Hi, my name is Vexori the Sun Eater. I am a Canadian VTuber, 18 plus content creator, voice actor, and I like to have a lot of fun on my streams. A lot of chaos, a whole lot of fun, and sometimes we have some really wholesome moments. So I got into virtual YouTubing in October of 2021. I thought it was... A really really neat concept to be able to stream and not necessarily have to show who I was behind the keyboard. It was kind of like a a Hail Mary for me because I wanted to try it. My ideal goal was to have fun and maybe make back kind of any money that I had spent on my VTubing model but it kind of blew up from there. Vexoria is a goddess character. She is a Lamia VTuber. So it is half woman, half snake. So the top portion is woman. The lower half is snake. She's got purple skin, dark black hair, golden eyes. She has a very Egyptian kind of aesthetic with a big headdress that is the bane of many artists' existence. She is very uh, well endowed and uh, she wears a lot of gold, has a lot of jewelry and has a tattoo under her eye. I recently added the scar to my right breast because I had gone through breast cancer, a lumpectomy treatment this past September, and I figured that was a good representation of me as a person in my model. And I've been very transparent about that journey with my community too. So, and and people thought it was a really cool addition. And I think it's a great conversation starter for people too, because they ask, well, what, what's that scar from? And I can have that conversation about breast cancer awareness. When I stream as Vexoria, it's very much a mixture of the character Vexoria and myself so i'll get into character and i'll pretend to dominate chat or put them in their place but also i like to laugh and i like to have a good time and i'll tell stories about like my everyday life hey guys i went to the doctor today and here's what the doctor said and you know i i also make mention of the fact that i'm married and i have two children i'm 37 years old so I kind of relate to a lot of older people, too, because I like to say that VTubing can be for anybody because nobody really knows who you are unless you divulge that information. So I think for me, it's a mixture of being Vexoria sometimes, but also interweaving who I am as a person behind the Avatar. I've always been a very very confident and strong person but I think that streaming to that many people I think really has made me a much more confident person and it's allowed me to feel more comfortable expressing myself and being less shy sometimes because I'm talking to a whole bunch of people at any given moment on my stream. and. I believe that it's allowed me to be more open about my mental health, it's allowed me to be more open about uh, talking about my breast cancer and things like that too. So I think that streaming as Vexoria and being this powerful woman has kind of translated really well to my real life and allowed me to be a bit more stronger and confident in everything that I do now.
2: Vexoria the Sun Eater is a VTuber based in Saskatchewan. That confidence that Vexoria described, the self-assuredness and strength gained in part through VTubing, that's at the heart of Anna Birna Turner's research. So you you did interview VTubers. What concerns did they express about revealing their real-life identities and their real-life appearances to their online audiences?
4: Yeah, so kind of across the board, the reason they wanted to do VTubing is because they they don't feel comfortable showing themselves. Um, And that can be for a a variety of reasons. Like some people just, you know, they they prefer their privacy. They don't want to show their face. Mm -hmm. Other people, you know, expressed, I don't want to have to worry about what i look like on camera you know because when you see yourself on camera and and you know there are people watching you yes. you know, it can be like oh is my hair okay like is my makeup okay things like that as everyone who's ever been in a zoom meeting can attest <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly like you're constantly like hyper aware yeah. of, of what people can see uh so there's definitely that aspect of of control with youtubers but like i'm going to show you exactly what i want you to see and, and nothing more and And furthermore, uh some of the people that I interviewed identified as, as queer um and specifically transgender, and they felt retubing was a way for them to like express themselves like their visual identity in in a manner that maybe they hadn't reached in their in their private lives or that they weren't comfortable so it was just across the board everyone was able to control what they wanted other people to see because otherwise they would be uncomfortable. So can we talk a bit more about that? What did
2: the VTubers you talked to say about how they use their avatars to express their identity?
4: Well, the biggest takeaway for for my research was the people who who identified as queer, specifically in terms of like being able to play with your appearance. I mean, I mentioned Mm -hmm. before how someone could pay you a certain amount of money, and then you would change out the model. But that's exactly the kind of exploration that isn't easy for, for anyone in the world. But for, for these VTubers, they could express themselves any way that they wanted. They could change their appearance. They could say, you know, if I'm feeling more feminine today, I could use this model. Like one of the one of the VTubers that I that I interviewed had like three different models, basically one that was like more masculine presenting, one that was more feminine, and one that was more androgynous. Um so you know, depending on how they were feeling, uh in, in terms of, you know, their relationship with their own identity, they could just decide, okay, this is what I look like today. And this is how I want people to treat me, which was pretty cool. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. I find it such an interesting tension that on one hand, VTubers are people who want to put themselves out there, right, to, to perform, to connect with audiences, but at the same time, they don't want to reveal their physical world identities. Do you have any thoughts on that, that sort of push-pull tension? Mm,
4: I, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily that They don't want to fully show their identities because they're, you know, they're speaking as they are. They're, they're showing their personalities, their interests. Um, and you, and you can, you know, judge them based off of how they interact with the, the people in their chat. It's really just. Once they, they feel comfortable in what people can see, they feel like they can, you know, embrace themselves and, and express themselves. Because right. across the board, um, basically everyone I interviewed felt like this was an avenue for them to be more comfortable in themselves. And so that they could, you know, speak how they actually want to. They could show their interests. They could be excited um, while not worrying about, you know, the things that everyone can get worried about when talking with strangers.
2: Mm-hmm. And just finally, what advice do you have for someone who's interested in trying out VTubing as a way of exploring your identity online?
4: Yeah, um, I say, go for it. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the motion capture setup, buying models, like everyone sees the really cool, well animated models and goes, Okay, I now need to drop $2,000 on a model, because yes, you can spend $2,000 on a model. Um, but really, you just you, you go, you go into it with an idea of, is there a character that I want to imitate is there a character that i've had as an artist or, or as a creative person and you know if you just go into it and you i think starting 2d is is honestly the easiest thing because 3d modeling is already <laughs> an intimidating subject but i feel like most people can imagine drawing even just a simple like smiley face so if you draw a smile like a face with a closed mouth and an open mouth there's free software you don't need to spend any money uh and you can customize it and it'll react to your voice and then you can just stick it on twitch and you can stream for free so if it's something that you're interested in you don't have to spend any money on it and then that way if you hate it oh well (laughs) and if you love it you know you can go ahead and pour all your all your
2: resources into it right anna thanks so much for your insights on this yeah no thank you anna birna turner is a recent master's graduate from malmo university in sweden her thesis focused on VTubing and identity
3: Well, my name is Brian Choi, and I'm the CEO of Iron Vertex. And uh, we're not really VTubers, but we are a company who does model creations. Uh, back when I started, VTubing wasn't a thing yet. It wasn't until around 2018-ish when a technology called FaceRig came in. And uh, it kind of allows VTuber to be tracked with webcams at home. So once it gives availability to have individuals doing, you know, home-based tracking and streaming, that's when VTubing became a thing. And that's when I start to get inquiries saying, hey, I've seen some of the Japanese uh, VTuber doing this thing. Can you also do it? And after looking shortly, I feel like, oh yeah, I can give it a try. And one thing lead to another, here I am. By now I can say I've seen a full range from completely fictional that is not even human-like or all the way to, hey, this is a picture, I want something as similar as possible. There is no particular pattern, but individuals lead the development of the characters, and almost every performance is live and interactive with a group of viewers. I think something interesting happening is that we're seeing a growing interest of companies and enterprise level look into, hey, what if we have a character representing a company as a front face of the company? I've seen different corporate viewers uh, doing different things. How similar are the content they create and the way they brand themselves? How similar are they to individuals, VTubers? It's still, yeah, that's, the, that's the, the interesting thing about it is that people like are testing out and they're seeing how the market reacts, how the consumers react, and they are changing strategies and see what comes next. And yeah, I think we should all look forward to um, what happens if now we have originally faceless brands, now we have a character representing them and these are VTubers.
2: I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about the influence of avatars online. So we've looked at the booming phenomenon of VTubers who are taking avatars to a whole new level. But even if we're not performers and we're not presenting online as creatively as Vexoria the Sun Eater or Rose Doodle, many of us still play with how we present ourselves online.
4: I like Barbed or... where was the
5: other one? Yeah, yeah. Or worm. That looks
2: like a and that's evolving as our virtual and physical worlds are ever more closely braided together. The concept of digital avatars goes back a long way, and its roots weren't even on the internet. Some argue the modern use of the term popped up in 1985 with the computer game Ultima IV, Quest of the Avatar. But as companies like Meta pitched their visions of the metaverse, where we spend more and more time in immersive online environments... The way people represent digital versions of themselves through avatars is a growing subject of discussion.
5: A digital avatar is anything that we can use to represent ourselves online. It could be as simple as a static profile photo, but in the context of what we really looked at, we were thinking of a digital representation that can walk around some given space. So this could be a shared online space like Second Life, It could be a video game platform, or it could be something that is used to represent someone while they are talking in a digital space, such as a VTube avatar on Twitch. This is Kristen Smirnov. I'm an associate professor of marketing at Whittier College. I've done research with Paul Messenger's research team at the University of Alberta, which is where I did my PhD. Kristen has studied the way people choose to present
2: themselves in digital worlds, specifically in Second Life. She says people rarely stray from authentic representations, choosing instead to tweak or improve on aspects of their physical bodies that they wish they could change in real life.
5: Ten years ago, digital avatars were really seen as something that individuals could put together to walk around a virtual space. Think of something like Second Life or World of Warcraft. In some platforms like Second Life, the avatars, they were totally customizable That was really what drew me and my co-researchers to the platform. This idea that you could put together an avatar that in theory was something that looked like you, something that looked like an anthropomorphic animal, or even something that was a disembodied point of light. Now, what we're seeing more is there's less of the distinction between who the person is in real life and how they appear online part of that is because of greater levels of technology overall. For example, features tracking software and gesture tracking software that is commonplace now wasn't really existent or at least common about 10 years ago. And so if you're talking about a digital avatar that's walking around a space, you're talking about something that you are controlling with your mouse or keyboard. So it probably feels quite distinct from you, the actual person. Now it's very cheap or probably free in a lot of sources to find software that can actually track your features, not only your gestures, but your actual facial features and expressions. And you can instinctively make this virtual representation of yourself appear a certain way on screen without any real effort on your part. So there's really that lessening of the wall between the virtual self and the physical self.
2: Mm-hmm. I have very clear memories of trying to navigate my character in Second Life, whatever, whenever that was 15 years ago or something, and just having it walk into walls and having a lot of trouble navigating, for sure. So how much of their real personality and their real appearance do people tend to bring to their digital avatars today?
5: Today, again, very different than it was 10 years ago. What's really interesting with what's happening today is the phenomenon called VTubers, Again, I'm going to compare it to about 10 years ago. If you're talking about the idea of a constructed virtual self 10 years ago in, let's say, second life, then people were really doing that in order to experience this different world, in order to, well, experience a second life where they could go explore using this Think of it more like a digital cursor that was represented in the world. That was really how they were maneuvering around this other space. It was very distinct from where they exist. That avatar was needed in order to walk around the space and see other people, talk with them, chat with them, maybe act out scenes of a a play, uh, reflect something they had seen in a favorite movie they enjoyed. Now, if you're talking about VTubers, There's less of that interactive experience in terms of a shared space, but there's more interaction in terms of kind of the the actual people. A VTuber is more like a performer. They're not someone who's working on a one-to-one interaction aspect, like in Second Life, where people are coming together into this space, kind of like social contemporaries, as they might run into each other at the mall, at a movie theater. A VTuber, on the other hand, is the one on stage. So they are the one kind of steering the conversation. They may just be holding a conversation. They may be streaming a video game that they are playing. But since the tracking software is automatically recording what they are doing and translating that onto the digital features of their avatar, again, there's not that level of separation between the self and the digital representation. There is a more seamless flow of the conversational flow because they can just be talking with people and, you know, not thinking about reflecting what they are saying, what they are feeling, what they are doing on the body and face of this digital representation of themselves.
2: And so beyond VTubers in particular, how much are people changing their uh, actual physical appearance when they're designing their avatars?
5: Generally speaking in the types of avatars we researched, where it's more of that second life setup where people are just interacting casually in a shared space, as opposed to someone being in a performer role, is that people, to our surprise, what we expected to find was that people would really kind of go nuts in this digital space where they could be anything. We went into our research projects expecting to find that, What we instead found is that when people create avatars to exist in these shared spaces, they mostly create avatars that are like themselves, but quote unquote, a little better. When I say a little better, we're talking about societal standards for uh, attractiveness, for generally the types of features that we reward. So someone would create an avatar that generally looks like themselves, It has the same general hair color, possibly the same gender, a lot of the same features. But at the same time, they would change aspects of themselves that they feel particularly, let's say, shaky on. You know, if someone has recently noticed that, oh, there's some lines showing up at the corners of my eyes where there weren't before, when they are creating an avatar that is going to be representing themselves in this shared casual space, then they're going to create an idealized version of themselves. You know, maybe it's how they remember themselves looking 10 years ago in the mirror, or maybe they have longer hair, whether they're losing their hair now, or they're going, oh, I missed having that, maybe a little less practical hairstyle that was just more fun to have. And so... Again, what we found is that people were creating avatars that were recognizable as themselves, but just maybe with the volume turned up a little.
2: Did that surprise you at all? Because I think, especially in the early days of the the user-oriented internet, the assumption seemed to be that people would invent entirely new personas completely from whole cloth. But it sounds like people basically want to be themselves, but with a little bit of wish fulfillment or an aspirational goal uh, attached to it.
5: Your description is absolutely what we found. And just as you prompted, we did expect to find that people would go just whole hog with creating new identities. We expected to find that in this completely freeing environment of these online spaces, people would really experiment with their identities. Instead, what we found is, again, it was themselves with the volume turned up a little.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. We have now face filters, we have lenses that let people manipulate photos of themselves to be sort of hyper specific and in some cases even visually flawless. Do people still feel the need to create avatars in the same way as 10 years ago now that they don't need to create these digital avatars from scratch, they can just modify a photo of themselves?
5: I think there definitely has been a blurring of the the distinction between the real space and the virtual because people as you say with some platforms, it automatically applies a filter to you. Some operating systems on phones, I believe it's Android, automatically cleans up photos a little, and some people don't even recognize that it does that by default. Many of the social media platforms, they can automatically clean up your appearance for you. Even on Zoom, you know, the platform that took over education for a lot of students and professors, students and teachers for years. You can go into the basic settings and say, oh, yes, clean up my appearance. Oh, yes, add makeup for me, whatever it might be. And people can very easily get used to looking at themselves with this slightly altered digital self. Now, I haven't done research into this area yet, although I am very interested in it. So we have seen a decline in popularity for some platforms like Second Life from, say, 10, 15 years ago. At the same time, there's another way in which people will represent themselves online, and that has seen a huge surge in popularity, and that is the area of video games. And so there's huge customization available in games like Baldur's Gate 3 or Starfield. You can incredibly customize your avatars there. What I have seen casually as I, I watch people post the avatars they've made Again, largely I was seeing people who looked like themselves, but a little better. Now, sometimes these selves might be of a different race, a different species. You know, that is the flexibility you get in video games where you don't wake up in a normal life and look in the mirror and realize that you've suddenly sprouted horns. I'm assuming I'm Saying that doesn't happen to most people. Right. (laughs) But in these video games, typically what I was seeing from people was if someone had, say, more delicate features, then when they created the avatar, that avatar would also have more delicate features. Even if it was in Baldur's Gate 3, another race entirely from something that appears on Earth.
3: From the Spark. Archives, 2022, philosopher David Chalmers.
6: Traditionally, our bodies have all been biological and physical, but now we're entering this new era where we can take on new bodies which are digital in form, and I want to say they're no less real for all that I mean there is this sometimes this tendency to say if something is digital it's not real Yeah, I I think this is a very old fashioned way of thinking now and maybe back in the 80s or 90s they contrasted real life with digital life but now so much of our lives is digital so I want to very much resist this idea that if it's digital it's not real Descartes thought you know we are ultimately minds we are things that think we are conscious beings and we bring our consciousness with us Everywhere, it never goes away, except maybe for a moment when we sleep and we're not dreaming. So I think we bring our consciousness everywhere we go, but we bring different aspects of our consciousness to different places. And when I'm at work versus when I'm at home versus when I'm hanging out with my friends, I may um, it's still me all this time, and I'm bringing my consciousness, my memories, and so on. But different parts of me may be active at a given time: the uh, the playful side, the serious side. And so, and I guess I think it's something like that with virtual reality. It provides a new environment for us to inhabit. When I go into VR, I'll now adopt a wholly new avatar. I'll have a a new form of embodiment in this virtual reality that may be nothing like my avatar in the real world. And I guess I'd say, well, it's still me who's who's doing this. But nonetheless, I'm quite often accessing part of my identity. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's a thing that just happens in general that when you go into VR that you see things from the perspective of a certain body, of a certain avatar, and you very strongly identify with that avatar. Often you're controlling that avatar and it feels to you as if that avatar is is your body. Some psychologists call this the body ownership illusion. I want to say it doesn't have to be an illusion. It can actually be true that this avatar is your body. It's not your physical body. It's your virtual body. And I think we should think of, you know, having a virtual body as a new form of embodiment that needn't really be illusion at all.
2: I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, as avatars and filters get more sophisticated, is that changing how we think of our real physical selves? I've been speaking with Whittier College professor Kristen Smirnov about the relationship between people's online and real-world behaviours. As a World of Warcraft player herself, Kristen is aware of why the video game environment in particular encourages people to play with their presentation and their identity.
5: In a platform like Second Life, the content of that platform was entirely dictated by the people who chose to participate within it. In contrast, a video game environment has objectives that is set by the original creators of that video game environment. Now, certainly there can be emergent gameplay where, for one example, in World of Warcraft, once a year they have this this race where they start a bunch of gnome characters and they try to race through the dangerous countryside. Oh, I found Mars. another gnome. No, that's oh, that, gnome. that's not ours. Okay. That's not our gnome. <laughs> to see who can win, who can cross the finish line first. Run! Run. That was not something that was uh, originally intended by the developers. But largely, when you're talking about a video game environment, you will be handed a sequence of objectives, a certain number of quests, where you are told, go here and do this thing. People are offered a lot more guidance in video game platforms. And within that, there may be a feeling of, since I have this very obviously structured world around me, I want to play a little more with the avatar that I am going to be exploring this set space with. I see. Whereas with Second Life, it's, I have no idea really what I'm supposed to be doing, <laughs> you know, and it sounds like you've been in second life and not for a long time, but yeah, yeah, but you probably have those memories of you would walk around and go, wow, look at this environment that someone has built. Look at how realistic I'm making air quotes. You have to imagine the air quotes. Look at how realistic this water looks with 15 years ago graphics. Yeah. And you would walk around, you would appreciate it. You would appreciate the fashion choices that maybe other people had made with their avatars. And then you're left kind of going, okay, now what? In the typical video game, you're never going to be left wondering, okay, now what? There's always a guide. There's always a list of bullet point quest objectives. Here's what I'm doing next. And so people may feel that since the game world is more constraining, maybe I need to feel a little less Constrained with being me within it. Mm, Interesting.
2: When it comes to this idea of you know presenting yourself as you, but a little bit amped up or a little bit better, does the self improvement dynamic run both ways? Like once you get used to seeing an idealized version of yourself online, do you then want to recreate it in in your physical existence? Like I'm thinking here of so called Instagram face, where you see people where their features seem absolutely perfect.
5: I haven't done research into that specific area myself, but I've certainly seen discussions even from the plastic surgery area where plastic surgeons have talked about how people who spend a lot of time on Instagram who are constantly faced with that social comparison of people who either they're using that, like you said, that Instagram face where there is an excess of makeup used in a way that actually kind of looks strange if you encounter it in real life. If you are constantly seeing that quote-unquote perfection in front of you from a combination of cosmetics and filters and even uh, very carefully crafted photographic angles and lighting and whatnot, then there is a unreal sense of comparison that absolutely develops. And these plastic surgeons, I've seen them talk about how people come in and he'll say, you know, what are you hoping to achieve? What are you going for? What look have you come to me to achieve? And they will put down the face of someone from Instagram in front of him, say, I want to look like this. And the, this that he is being handed is something literally unreal through the combination of filters, face app, all of those other elements that add that sense of, you know, themselves, but the volume turned up.
2: Yeah, I mean, it makes me think that, you know, people can be whoever they want to be on the internet anyway, and seem to be able to derive a lot of satisfaction and personal development without having to be in an immersive environment. So are people still interested in creating digital avatars?
5: At least with the video game industry, they definitely are. The game that really I really think of for the idea of avatar customization is Final Fantasy XIV, the massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Only man has the wisdom and the clarity. The people that I see customizing their avatars, they put huge amounts of time and effort into this. And to get an additional piece of clothing for an avatar... You may have to go fight some demon lord, you know, find 20 other people to go face these huge challenges with you. And you don't even know for certain that you will actually get the item dropped that you were hoping to have the appearance of.
2: Hi there, Samir Chabra, Spark Producer here. What's an item drop? It's when you win an item after beating an enemy in a video game. The enemy disappears and in its place, maybe a potion or a shield or maybe a sword, it just...
5: Pops into place. Now, for a lot of people, they're trying to go to those environments to improve their gear so they feel more powerful. But for some people, they will go and run these environments just so they get the exact shirt or, you know, cape that they really want to really perfect the look of their avatar. And if they don't get it on the first drop, then they'll go try it, you know, five, ten more times just for that one piece of clothing. Mm -hmm.
2: So it's partly self-presentation, but it sounds like there's also an aspect of the demonstration of prowess in the game in, in virtue of being able to accomplish these tasks.
5: Oh, absolutely. In World of Warcraft, the developers were actually resistant for a while to the idea of letting people do what is called transmogrification in that game. That is where you can choose to have the appearance of any given item, because part of what the, the developers thought would be a challenge with transmogrification is the idea that it would not reflect the most uh, recent up-to-date work by the developers themselves. You know, we, we want to make sure that the developers' work is rewarded in terms of making sure that people were celebrating whatever the latest gear was. But what they found is that instead of it being that the developers' work wouldn't be rewarded if people weren't showing the latest gear. Instead, what happened is people would identify, oh, there's this one belt from seven years ago that I never got. But as I'm trying to put together this exact look that I want, I'm realizing that belt that no one has thought of for seven years because its stats aren't that great, would be the exact accessory I need to polish off this outfit. And so they go back and they run this very old content, hoping to get that one drop. Um, I can say personally with my World of Warcraft avatar, there was one shield that I wanted and I had to have that shield. I was going to get it, even though it was about a 2% likelihood that it would drop on any given run. And so I just went back and every time that it reset, I would go back, give it another shot. Eventually it did drop. Huh. And so there was enough of a demand from the players that finally they did institute a transmog, as it's casually known, a transmog system and hugely popular people who really, really liked being able to customize their avatars in world of Warcraft to that extent. They've really leaned into it by now. Mm-hmm. There's actually a transmogrification competition, the trial of style where You will go into this competition with, I believe, four other randomly selected people. And all of you will be handed a series of prompts, you know, like summer fun or whatever it might be. And you quickly have to piece together a look that works on your avatar from all of the fashion pieces you have collected over your years there. An audience votes on it. You win prizes and you get rewarded for having that level of customization.
2: Mm. Is there a risk to all this that people might become too digitized in a sense, that we run the risk of losing track of our actual physical embodied selves?
5: I think there absolutely is. My biggest concern there is with the filters. A lot of people, if they get used to seeing, I I use the comparison of Zoom, where it can automatically clean up your appearance. Again, big air quotes about clean up your appearance, because it's more applying socially desirable standards onto your face. And a lot of people, if they have those filters applied on their Zoom window, that's constantly looking back at them, if their phone automatically cleans up their photos to remove blemishes, under eye discolorations, if it adjusts any asymmetry in the face, we become used to thinking of what we are seeing looking back at us from a digital screen, whether our computer, whether our phone, as that's how we should look. When that filter turns off somehow, when we look in a mirror, when we see some other photo capture software that does not automatically improve our appearance, we may feel as though we look uglier in some way because we are comparing ourselves to an impossibly perfect digitally improved self that we really can't be because for one thing in real life people have pores. But if you look at a lot of pictures on Instagram and TikTok and, and other digital representations of people, there are no pores. <laughs> you know, they, they have perfect plastic Barbie skin. Pores may not be the most attractive thing in the world. I don't think anyone goes around saying, oh yeah, I want to make my pores more visible. But they do exist. And if you look at some Natural facet of humanity, you know, existing as a human, like seeing pores or seeing a slightly different color under your eyes, and you see that and you go, Oh, that's ugly, that's bad, that needs to be fixed. That is unfortunate because you are comparing yourself on some unconscious but constant level to this digital version of yourself that you've created that is constantly improved via filters via automatic correction by the software. And I, I do think that's a risk. It's setting up this comparison that might be even more challenging to escape than comparing ourselves to, you know, the people we see in ads as models or the, the perfect physiques of superhero actors. Because now we're comparing it to a constantly subtly improved version of ourselves. It's just like what we found with the research that we performed um, about 10 years ago, where in Second Life, people were making themselves, but with the volume turned up a little, but they were consciously choosing to create that avatar. And we both experienced that when you were walking around Second Life, there was a real separation between you and the avatar. You were using a mouse, you were using a keyboard. You were very aware of the fact that this is not you. This is an avatar that you're controlling. But in Zoom, in Instagram, it's you, but the volume turned up again, but this time it's happening automatically, sometimes without your knowledge or consent. And so I do absolutely think that there could be a risk of having that social comparison because what is more tempting to compare yourself against than the slightly perfected version of yourself? Hmm. Thanks so much for your insights on this. Oh absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about it.
2: Kristen Smirnov is a professor of marketing at Whittier College. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samory Johannes, Samir Chabra, and me, Nora Young. And by Anna Berna Turner, Kristen Smirnov, Brian Chui, and VTubers Rose Doodle and Vexoria the Sun Eater. And from the Spark Archives, David Chalmers. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.